There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, you have myself, Jacob, as your presenter and... Me, Ari, as the second presenter. All right. So before we um, go into our program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. And of course, FreeCR and Green Left Radio um, stand unequivocally with Indigenous people as they struggle for land, decolonisation and sovereignty. Okay, so in terms of, um, I guess, um, first kind of news story to kind of want to kind of cover kind of for this week for the, for the start of our program is we didn't get a chance to sort of um, have any sort of comments on this. But as of um, last Monday, um, New South Wales is is now actually out of lockdown. Now we didn't get a, we didn't get much of an opportunity to really comment on, I guess, some of the implications of this and you know what are what the the issues. And so there is an article in Green Left um, titled "Runnable People Still Not Vaccinated as New South Wales Reopens." And so to comment a bit more. As the kind of, as the article kind of starts here, you know, the newly extorted Premier Dominic Perrett, who we sort of spoke about like in our last kind of week, he, as he kind of eased kind of restrictions for fully um, vaccinated people in New South Wales on October 11th, First Nations people in the Hunter region are being infected at an alarming rate. At least 60 First Nations people in the Hunter, um, Hunter caught the virus last week. Um, recreation facilities will reopen with density limits of for up to 5,000 people. But of course, an exemption has been given for the Ararest, the world's richest horse race. 10,000 people will be able to gather for the race on October 16 in a bid to up the gambling stakes for the 15 million prize. And of course, interestingly enough, Ari, we can sort of also point out that in, um, in Victoria, um, the Premier is also, um, has also stated that over 10,000 people will be able to gather for the Melbourne Cup. Now, of course, it's 10, just a, a bit of a caveat, it's 10,000 fully vaccinated people. So it's sort of like, just because when we talk about sort of COVID-19 and sort of large crowds, we don't want to sort of necessarily be yeah. dishonest by saying, oh, look, they're allowing 100,000 sort of people together. I mean, yeah, there's 10,000 fully vaccinated people. Um, at the same time, though, I mean, <laughs> given yeah. this dominant, the kind of dominance of the gambling industry, why is it? And <laughs> the fact that we, the fact that for any reopening, we, we, we should be having a cautious approach. The fact that <laughs> that they're prioritising, just like in New South Wales and Victoria, horse racing of mm. 
all things um, that that has to go back um, to as much high capacity as possible, I think is pretty luxurious. Yeah, and especially after the whole furor over the grand final, you know, people gathering illegally for the grand final and stuff, like deciding to, you know, prioritize these big events <coughs> feels very, like, hypocritical in a way. Yeah, and of course, yeah, the, um, and also the fact is um, the, the government, one of the interesting sort of things about, I've noticed about, the government when it comes to kind of easing kind of restrictions is they always send they've always tended to prioritize um horse racing gambling and sports meanwhile the arts is still incredibly has incredibly been gutted by this pandemic yeah always need an opportunity to cut the arts <laughs> the government does and go, i guess going into the sort of next point from the article um commenting on the new south wales kind of reopening so when it comes to the question of um, schools and education, um, the new South Wales Department of Education basically made an announcement that on-site learning will return with level three safety measures on October 25th. This was actually a week um, earlier than what was sort of planned. And of course, the Premier sort of justified this on the grounds that seven. 72.8% of the population is fully vaccinated, despite include this not including approximately 20% of people mm. under 16 years of age. Yeah, yeah. And of course, quoting from OzSage, a network of um, Australian uh, epidemiologists experts, pointed out that the sh- children are the largest unvaccinated group and therefore could likely contribute to community transmission. And, of course, children between the ages of 12 and 15 have been eligible to receive COVID-19 vaccinations only since September. And, of course, as of October 11, only 16.2% have been vaccinated. And, of course, despite this sort of um, risk, I mean, the New South Wales government has not necessarily made it a requirement for children aged 12 and under to wear masks at school. And, of course, its accelerated plan um, to reopen state schools blindsided the, um, the New South Wales Teachers Federation, which is the equivalent to the AEU, who have actually, you know, have been working on a, a stage return for children in early kind of November. Yeah, not only did the um, does this... Like, does this thing with the, I forgot the word, um, bringing back all the school children late October, not only is that like earlier than planned, it's also, as far as I understand it, the plan is to bring back as many children as possible for in-person learning, whereas the initial plan was not only starting later, but a staged return. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, because I think, you know, I guess one of the, one of the kind of contexts is, is obviously, I mean, in terms of like our kind of assessment, you know, we're not necessarily saying like in terms of commentary because in in actual fact, there's there's probably whatever people think about the government's kind of reopening. Mm. Given that the government is committed to reopening in New South Wales and that's all going, there's probably no yeah. going back in a sense. But you know, the yeah. they when it came comes to this kind of reopening, you know, why, why is it that they're not taking a kind of cautious kind of approach, a stage kind of return so that the teachers yeah. and their staff are able to kind of plan around um, adjusting to this sort of new kind of COVID normal. And it, yeah, but yeah. it's all just cramming it all in um, or it kind of once. Yeah. And more than that, why is, why do they feel the need to like disrupt any plans that might've already been made based on like the previous version of the plan? Like, not only is it that, you know, they feel the need to cram this all in at once, it's like 
they the teachers the New South Wales teachers unions and stuff have been planning for the stage return to start in November. Like that's what the plan is. Hmm. And then uh the Premier is the the state government is like, No, screw your plans. We'll do what we want. Which like people are always talking about COVID safe plans and stuff. And uh this is let's um get rid of your version of a COVID safe plan is yeah. basically the idea here. And one of the other things as well is the fact that um this is not this is actually not the last time, um, not the first time that the that the government has con- in the New South Wales Covenant context has made changes to this to a school reopening plan without consulting mm. educators. And of course it has also failed to deliver on promises to prioritise teachers in the vaccine rollout. And yeah. I think one of the other things, um, a, a, a comment from the union on this is that they said that the accelerated reopening plan will stop teachers from testing and adjusting COVID-19 health and safety settings. It will mean students and teachers return while audits are still underway for schools' ventilation kind of requirements. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, meanwhile, the New South Wales Department of Health figures show that vaccination rates in some postcodes are as low as 30 or 40 percent. In suburbs near large universities, such as Kingsford, um, Shippendale, Macquarie University in Ultimo, vaccination rates lag. And by October 9th, less than 50 percent of eligible residents in those suburbs had received two doses of um, the vaccination. Mm. And... The, yeah. um, Omar Khrushchev, president of the Australian Medical Association, said on October 7th that the AA, AMA is very concerned by Perrot's apparent shift in approach. The changes to the roadmap have occurred at the 11th hour without the presence of the chief health officer at the announcement. Meanwhile, the government's crisis cabinet um, has become an economic recovery committee, suggesting that that health advice will no longer guide the government. And I think, you know, yeah. this is despite the fact that by October 7th, nine Aboriginal people have died from COVID. And, um, and mm. Kalenda Griffiths from Oz Sage's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Working Group said Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have experienced an incidence rate that is almost twice that of non-Indigenous people throughout the Delta outbreak. She added that the proportion of deaths in those aged 40 to um, 59 is about three times higher than that of the non-Indigenous population. Griffin's uh, epidemiologist said Oz Sage wanted wants 95 to 100% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over the age of 12 to be fully vaccinated before states and territories open up. The Mm. easing of restrictions has also concerned thousands of people with disability. People with Disability Australia reported on October 11th that only just over a third of NDIS participants had been fully vaccinated against COVID. Among NDIS participants aged between 12 and 15, that rate was just... 4.8%. 4.8%. And of course, um, these low rates of, of um, vaccination amongst, among people who are more likely, um, among people who are more likely to develop sil- serious illness or die from COVID are in large part consequences of their deprioritization in the vaccine rollout. Mm. And I think, you know, present people with disability Australia President Samantha Connor said on October 11th, but while many think that a loosening of lockdown means the worst is over, the opposite is true for many people with disability, because for them, the worst is yet to come. She said the New South Wales government in particular needs to understand that putting at-risk people um, in further danger is unconscionable. She said it must be set vaccination targets and improve vaccination strategies for people with disability and their support 
um, workers to ensure that people with disability can be safe. And um, and I think, you know, the draft commissioner's report from the Royal Commission into um, Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability, released in September 7th, said that um, state government should not begin lifting um, stay-at-home um, restriction orders until all people with, dis- with the disability have had the opportunity to be fully vaccinated. And, of course, you know, there's Sage, which is being sort of quoted in this, you know, on the context of this kind of addressing the current stage of this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, recommended a layered and combined protection strategy. It wants governments to ensure ventilation for all buildings, along with vaccines, testing, tracing and non-pharmaceutical interventions, including crowd control, movement restrictions, masks, blended learning and working, online face-to-face meetings, um, and other measures that help reduce contact between people. Anyway, I think that's that's a bit yeah, that's just a bit my sort of that's just a bit of a comment on the kind of New South Wales reopening. You know, mm. it'll be sort of interesting to see, I guess, how it sort of plays out because I mean, just like any capitalist government, it is going to be fright with kind of problems, as it always said, because you know, the government always in in their sort of typical kind of things, always has been putting profits before um before health and people in all these instances. And I mean I guess the only sort of thing I'll just sort of note is um, it'll be interesting to see also how Victoria's sort of easing restrictions plays out, especially in the in the context of a high number of cases, because I think the cases are to 2,000 a day yeah. at the moment. Um, but of course, um, Daniel Andrews has basically said there's no there's no going back necessarily. They're still they're going to be um, lifting the lockdown, although still be more. To be fair, um, it's not like they're like throwing out every single kind of restriction, etc., like some governments in the US and yeah, yeah. Um, the UK did. Um, they are. It is essentially, in some sense, going to be a walkout for people who are not vaccinated because if you're not vaccinated, you are essentially not going to be able to access most of the ease, um, ease kind of restrictions. Yeah, yeah. I wrote uh, an article on the 5th, of October, or published it, I should say, on the 5th of October, that covered basically what I see as one of the major issues in terms of the reopening thing. Like Dan Andrews saying that there's basically no turning back. There's a big element of, and we've talked about this before, of course, there's a big element of the cutting back of, um, say, like the emergency payments and stuff like that, um, the removal of like unemployment support from people. There's a big element of that that seems basically designed to force the states to open up so that, like... In theory, people can get back to work and, like, survive. Of course, you know, with uh, continued capacity limits and that sort of stuff, that's not actually going to happen. But it does really seem like, especially the Liberal government's approach to unlocking is basically entirely motivated by profit over, like, the lives of people. Because with, especially with, like, the big percentage of children under 16 who aren't vaccinated, that's could very easily and will pretty likely lead to the, you know, a surge in cases among younger people, <clears throat> pardon me, which, like, is very likely to lead to breakthrough cases in vaccinated adults and stuff, because, like, the vaccines aren't 100% effective, we know that, and, you know, there will be way fewer uh, hospitalizations among vaccinated people, that's what the evidence shows, but it's still, if it is allowed to go unchecked, which it kind of seems like the New South Wales government is fine with that happening, then there's going to be a lot of problems. 
Yeah, we'll have to see how how it kind of plays out. I guess the main, yeah. the only sort of thing I sort of have is um, when it comes to sort of these discussions on kind of COVID, um, we have to kind of acknowledge that sometime um, that there has been an element by which there's been a number of predictions sort of made about how bad the COVID-19 pandemic would sort of play out, and sometimes mm. they haven't necessarily come out true. Um, but, I mean, I think at the same time, you know, that shouldn't stop us from being critical of um, the government, especially since yeah. these issues of the fact that Indigenous people, people with disabilities, haven't been prioritised at all in these vaccine rollout, and then they're still going ahead with a accelerated kind of reopening, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it just says, I think, everything about the priorities of our government. And in fact, you know, they could have actually, this actually could have been avoided from the beginning if the government actually put an effort into ensuring that those people were vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. And something that I do just want to make a point of real quick is that I can't, I can't remember who said it. It's, you know, one of those things that's kind of a folkloric sort of quote, but the there's this idea that basically like, if things go well, then it should look like we overreacted. Like, like you said, there have been a lot of predictions about how bad things could get, and a lot of those didn't happen because people acted to stop them from happening. And so I think one of the things to keep in mind is like, even if I am making dire predictions about, you know, all the children in New South Wales getting COVID and infecting their parents or whatever, which is not exactly what I'm saying. Like, the point of pointing that out for me is that like, People need to act to stop that, and it doesn't seem like the New South Wales government has any interest in doing that. Hmm. Exactly. Anyway, we might um, we might just um, play a quick um, we'll play a quick announcement, and um, then we'll play and then we'll play a bit of an interview, a pre-recorded interview that we have from Green Left. Um, anyway, I might just actually play an important kind of announcement because you know in the discussion of this COVID nineteen, I think probably the most important thing is that if you haven't been vaccinated yet. Um, you should get your um, vaccination. Um, there's no supply issues anymore, apparently, um, which is in, um, which is good. I remember um, the good old days when it was <laughs> yeah. a struggle to actually get a vaccine appointment. Um, you had to like call like four to six different GPs or something to even get a point. Yeah. But these days, you can actually just log into the government site and just find a vaccine appointment. And there's yeah. also plenty of hubs as well. Like yeah. for example, if you live in the Moreland area, um, Coburg High School will be running. Um, um, vaccination hubs from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Yeah, just go to Cobra High School, walking accepted, and you can get your vaccination. Yeah, I'm getting mine on Monday, my second dose. Mm. It's going to suck. <laughs> a message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mom. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. 
All right, you're listening to um, Green Left Radio, and I'm going to be just playing, I was going to play this pre-recorded interview that was produced by Green Left, which is titled Comp26 Coalition Calls Out for November 6th um, Global Day Action. And this was an interview that was actually conducted by the international editor of Green Left um, with um, Kamala, um, I think her name, with an interview with Kamala um, Baba, um Barbara Gorlia from the COMP26 Coalition in Britain. The COMP26 Coalition is a civil society collection of groups and individuals organising for climate justice during the COMP26 meeting in Glasgow. The coalition is organising the People's Summit for Climate Justice, which will take place from November the 7th to November the 10th. A global day of um, protest action for climate justice has also been set for November the 6th. Um, so, yeah, hope um, listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. I'm speaking with Camille Barbagello from the COP26 Coalition. Uh, the COP26 Coalition is a UK-based civil society coalition of groups and individuals who will be mobilising around climate justice during the upcoming COP26 meeting. Um, This coalition is organising the upcoming People's Summit for Climate Justice, which will be taking place from November 7 to 10. Uh, And in addition, uh, there's also a global day of action that has been set for November 6 that will uh, involve groups taking action around Britain, but also uh, around the world. So firstly, welcome, Camille, and thanks so much for speaking to Green Left. Thank you. It's uh, good to be speaking to you again. I think it's been about 25 years since I did an interview with Green Left Weekly. <laughs> well, it was probably not with me then, in that, if that was the case. <laughs> but, yeah, look, it's, it's great to have you here. And just firstly, could you tell us a little bit about how the COP26 coalition came together? Certainly. Um, As listeners will probably know, uh, the Global Climate Talks, which is the Conference of Parties, uh, which is convened by the UN, moves around the world um, each year. There's been a lot of pressure um, for it to move to countries in the Global South. But nonetheless, uh, here we are with it um, happening in the UK. Um, And so what normally happens is that civil society in its kind of broadest kind of uh, kind of articulation, so trade unions and grassroots organisations and also NGOs and faith groups uh, come together um, because they play an important role uh, in the COP process, both as observers um, and delegates inside of uh, the blue and green zones, but also on the outside. Um, And the COP26 coalition um, is under the leadership of folk who've been engaging in the um, COP process for over 20 years um, and who have been working in solidarity with um, movements predominantly from the global south, but also indigenous movements and frontline communities across the world, um, who've been arguing for um, a system change uh, and the necessary kinds of system change that we need to see um, and have really been pushing for a climate justice um, framework to really kind of 
frame um, how we need to think about solutions and also how we need to think about the problems that we're facing. Um, and the coalition uh, is a UK-based, uh, sorry, British and Northern Ireland-based uh, coalition uh, that uh, involves all of the organisations and groups that I just mentioned in terms of the wide spectrum of civil society um, and is really interested in using this process uh, to further the politics and the aims of uh, climate justice and at the same time uh, has undertaken to do movement building um, and using this opportunity to obviously build public pressure on uh, nations that will be gathered uh, at the COP, but also to build our power um, on the streets uh, and together in terms of our strategies uh, and our solutions that we're proposing um, in uh, the People's Summit as well. Thanks, Camille. And can you just, I know you're still finalising the program for the People's Summit, so it's probably a bit of a premature question, but if you are able to, could you just maybe outline for us some of the highlights of the People's Summit? Yeah, um, so I'm pretty proud of uh, the People's Summit. For those who have been following the COP26 coalition uh, for the last 18 months, you'll know that the postponement of COP um, happened last year as a result of the global pandemic. Um, and so we've already hosted um, two global gatherings. We did them online in November of last year and um, April of this year. So the People's Summit really continues a lot of the conversations that we've already been having um, digitally. Uh, we had 8,000 people register for the global gathering last year. Um, and so the People's Summit this year um, is being organised uh, with a hybrid format uh, in recognition of the severe um, inequity and unevenness uh, and barriers that predominantly people from the Global South, um, who happen to be all of the countries on the red list um, of the UK immigration uh, rules, are having in accessing the COP26 processes. So, you know, an underfunded uh, and not very well resourced coalition like ourselves is um, able to really think about inclusivity in a way that the UK government seemingly can't get their head around. Uh, and so we are offering both an in-person event uh, in Glasgow, which will be happening across 13 venues uh, to increase and enhance our COVID safety. Um, and it, we will also be conducting a digital program. So listeners in Australia, um, who I don't think you can leave the country yet, can you? Um, uh, will be able to tune in to the digital program uh, and uh, and there will be, you know, everything that people understand that the left like to do, you know, panels and workshops uh, and trainings. Um, and uh, I think that one of the most important aspects of the People's Summit is the bringing together of different movements to sit around the same table and discuss things from um, and really listen to each other um, and listen to what is happening in different communities around the world. What we know is that the climate crisis is here uh, well and truly. Listeners in Australia, I've obviously don't need to explain that too, given the um, fires uh, and droughts and every other ecological disaster that is um, unfolding on the Australian continent as we speak. Um, and so the People's Summit brings a certain urgency uh, to both our discussions um, in terms of 
We obviously need to accelerate um, our campaigning and our organising efforts, uh, and but in doing so, we need to make sure that we really centre justice. Um, there's no point in racing ahead and ending up with authoritarian, um, which are usually quite racist uh, solutions in how we manage uh, both the crisis now and also the crisis in the future. That's very, yeah, very interesting, actually. I mean, you're right in terms of the situation in Australia. We feel that we're both at the forefront of the climate change reality, but also one of the countries contributing the most to it, <laughs> to climate change. So, um, which is why I think this event is so important and why I think audiences and activists in Australia really need to participate in any way they can. So uh, it's good to hear that you know, in a sense, the COVID reality will actually perhaps make this more of a global event than um, if it was just limited to face-to-face -face participation. So that provides a great opportunity for activists here. Yeah, it's about the only thing that I think is good that's come out of uh, the global pandemic <clears throat> is that I don't think that we have any excuse anymore not to build, to, but we have to build an international movement. Uh, global, we have a global problem. You can't solve the climate crisis in one country. You can definitely start to work on uh, how different, you know, national economies and production processes are contributing. Uh, and I would wholeheartedly agree that Australia punches above its weight uh, in emissions um, and in uh, lifestyle choices uh, around, uh, you know, a whole variety of really carbon-rich uh, kind of uh, choices. But obviously, we don't need people to make individual lifestyle um, changes. We need uh, the, the government of Australia and the corporations of Australia to disinvest from fossil fuels, and we need them to do it immediately. Um, and... There are many campaigns in Australia at the moment that are on the forefront of uh, trying to stop fossil fuel extraction. Um, and I would, you know, hope to see a lot of those discussions from the Pacific region um, happening at uh, both in Australia, but also at the People's Summit as well. Um, and also I would hope to see people taking to the streets on November the 6th uh, in terms of um, it, we have to... Like, as I said before, global problems require global solutions um, and we cannot leave uh, coordination and cooperation to um, the leaders of nation states, especially when your leader is someone like Scott Morrison or, um, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, or, you know, previously Donald Trump, though Biden's, you know, hardly that much better. Um, and so uh, in that way. I think that the COP really throws a light on uh, the role of social movements and also our responsibility. Now is not the time to leave uh, these questions up to governments who have a vested interest uh, in fossil capital capitalism. Um, and we have to break the kind of connections between how people make money and huge amounts of money uh, and extractivist methods. Um, and I think Australia and the Australian left has a really important role to play um, in that debate and that discussion and also keeping a shitload of uh, fossil fuels in the ground because um. otherwise it's really bad for everyone else. I think a lot of us are sort of feeling like, you know, this COP is, if you like, our last, a bit of a last chance for governments to actually come forward with the sorts of, um, you know, commitments to emissions cuts that are needed. Um, 
I mean, you know, especially given the IPCC's latest reports, um, including the leaked reports and the worsening emergency. I mean, do you, you know, do you think, does the, does the coalition think that anything is going to come out of this COP in terms of the kinds of commitments coming from governments from nation states that are actually needed to guarantee a safe climate? Yeah, so I think it's important to have a think about how we think about time and urgency and emergency. Um, I'd really caution against the kind of feeling that this is that time is running out or this is our last chance, because I think we need to be realistic that we've blown through all of our last chances. The last chances were decades ago uh, in terms of stopping climate change. We're now um, locked into some pretty catastrophic levels of uh, global warming uh, and the earth is getting hotter and that's going to have um, effects. In saying that, that doesn't mean that it's game over. <laughs> it's, a, it's the difference between whether or not it's disastrous or whether or not it's ca catastrophic. Um, and you're right, the leaked IPCC um, information shows that if we were to follow all of the commitments that are currently on the table, we would be locked into a three-degree world, a uh, three-degree warmer world, um, which is an absolute disaster for Australia. Like it, that's not that's not a livable um, scenario for the vast majority of people in Australia, nor um, communities in uh, just north of Australia in terms of around the equator. So uh, we have a really complex, I think, situation to deal with. We have to uh, maintain some level of hope. Um, and I think that hope comes through building solidarity and understanding how powerful we really are. Um, we can't wait for governments to act. Uh, we've been waiting for governments to act for decades now. Um, and what they've demonstrated is that uh, the, um, the desire for money and for profit uh, and for wealth uh, far outstrips seemingly <laughs> um, the self-interest of uh, staying alive on a livable and habitable planet. So um, I can't remember who said it, but it's easier to imagine the end of the world at the moment than it is the end of capitalism, right? Uh, so that, I think, ends up feeling quite demoralising, actually. And what we know about um, how environmentalists, and, you know, I think we need to put ourselves in that category in terms of I'm not blaming other people, have uh, talked about climate change for the last kind of decade, has often used a kind of tick-tock, tick TikTok kind of um, uh, uh, discourse or narrative around. We basically we've been trying to scare people into caring about things that really affect them. And what we know about scaring people is that it usually leads them to support quite reactionary solutions. And so we need to be really careful. We are genuinely in a very serious crisis and one that's about to that is very bad for many people around the world. And I. Again, I reiterate, I'm not trying to tell people how bad things are. I know the kind of horror and uh, terror that it has rained down on very many communities in Australia over the last couple of years. Um, but it's going to get worse um, and before it gets better. Uh, and what we do now definitely matters. So it's even though we've blown through uh, those, um, a lot of those last last chances, uh it still matters what we do now, uh, and we really have ten years uh, to make the to make massive transformations in how we produce energy uh, and how we consume energy. Um, and sh and 
And the energy regime is, is deeply connected to modes of accumulation um, and forms of production and ways in which capitalism um, organises. What I would say um, is that global capital and finance uh, is already transitioning, right? So the idea that they're dinosaurs that are, you know, still drunk uh, on the power and, and profits of fossil fuels a is very true, but they're dinosaurs that are um, also very uh, have a high degree of self-interest, <laughs> uh, and they are um, they are already transitioning. Now we know what happens when workers are not in control of transitioning uh, economies out um, here in Britain. Uh, the famous miners' strike of the 80s is a classic example um, of when governments and industry uh, are in control of decommissioning industries. And we know all across the north of England, we can see the effects of what happens around abandonment and neglect of working class communities who are just thrown on the scrap heap. So what we need is a worker-led transition. Uh, and quite frankly, we can start doing that now. We don't have to wait for governments because it's us that take the, um, the fossil fuels out of the ground. It's us that uh, manufacture them and it's us that transport them around the world. So the working class quite literally can produce very quickly the change that we need. And we need to go back to some of the excellent history in Australia, you know, I'm sure when people talk about climate change in Australia that they can't not talk about the Builders Labourers Federation of the 1970s, who understood very clearly that working class people have an immense amount of power to create change outside of their, their um, wages and conditions. And it's that kind of confidence, it's that kind of clarity, and it's that kind of ability to act and willingness to act that we need to see happening in Australia and across the global north at a frightening scale, because there are literally millions and millions of people in the global south who are already struggling, already fighting and are waiting, basically, <laughs> for movements uh, that uh, in the global north to catch up uh, and to start acting uh, with a degree of coordination that means that we might just get out of this uh, without it being an absolute catastrophe. Yes. That's what we're aiming for. Um, I guess the, the last thing I wanted to just ask you to comment on, I suppose, is a little bit more about this whole question of fundamental system change that needs to take place. I mean, as you say, you know, we don't we don't have to wait for governments to um, to, to talk about and organise around a just transition. Um, but I guess every, uh, everything we do now. Um, in that direction points towards a very different kind of future, one where, you know, the levers are in the hands of working people and not uh, big capital. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, especially given that the this the leaked IPCC report, you know, is, is basically making a pretty clear case for why um, capitalism is, uh, you know, inconsistent with uh securing a safe climate and that we need system-wide change if we're going to actually avoid catastrophic climate change. Um, so to me, this is the exciting bit, right? Um, and this is where the hope lies. Uh, and this is why I actually think that uh, it's not just out of a kind of um, 
it's not just against doom and gloom and kind of dragging our bodies through this kind of last kind of act or last moment on stage kind of thing. This is our moment, right? Like, and the left has to seize it. Like, we're not going to get another chance at this point because we have to fundamentally change the binary between work and nature. Um, and I would throw care um, into that mix. Uh, so those three concepts, and I would start with work. Um, work fundamentally changes uh, in a worker-led transition. Now, what do I mean by work? I don't just mean uh, blokes who work in fossil fuel industries by any stretch of the imagination. I mean that everybody's work has to change because everybody's relationship uh, to the more than human world uh, and to uh, recentering a completely different ethic around care and justice in our lives. Um, and so uh, we need massive investment uh, and support for and revaluing of the work that traditionally women have done and migrants and people of colour. They've usually done it in an unpaid capacity. Um, since the 1970s, in places like Australia and in Britain and in the, in the US, we've dragged a huge amount of working class women out of uh, unwaged work and into waged work. And that's really changed a whole variety of ways in which the capitalist system works. Uh, and it's really accelerated uh, the climate crisis in a whole variety of really complex and uh, and quite interesting ways, actually. So work changes, everyone's work changes, um, and we get a hell of a lot more time uh, to do other activities that we have been told are backward and boring and feudal and peasant-like um, and it means that our lives actually change. It means that we have a relationship with the food uh, that we are going to consume and eat and produce. Uh, it means that we have a relationship to our energy production. Uh, that means that we don't just uh, think that there's an unlimited and unbounded amount um, of, uh, of resources for us just to plunder and exploit. And it means that we get to reimagine what progress means, right? And it's not a linear um, idea where we're somehow hurtling towards some you know, quite frankly, horrific dystopian world where robots do everything um, and uh, we all just get to sit around with our iPhones constantly staring into social media for the rest of our lives. Um, so that's the, that's the exciting part, right? Like that's uh, where the revolutionary ideas come from. That's where we get to discuss with communities, Indigenous communities who've, who have managed to maintain and hold on to uh, previous ideas that they had before colonisation uh, and imperialism came and disrupted um, so much of, of people's ways to life. And it means that we have to acknowledge that lots of ideas that we thought were really sacred <laughs> um, and, a real, and a part of um, modernity, things like freedom and rational men uh, and all of those things actually need to be rethought, right? So our relationship with the more than human world has to be transformed and we have to stop thinking of ourselves as separate uh, from the world in which we live and are dependent on. And I would respectfully suggest that learning from Indigenous communities and rethinking about how we do not own the world, but we are custodians uh, and we are moving through it and we have to take care of it in the same way as we have to take care of ourselves and those in our communities, um, offers a much brighter future uh, than some kind of green capitalist dystopian uh, world where um, we're fracking and geoengineering and, you know, I've heard 
things like asteroid mining and a whole variety of other things that just seem completely bonkers to me um, and also, ter- you know, obviously horrifying when it all goes really wrong. Nuclear um, would be the other, um, you know, answer that a huge amount of people desperately t- trying, you know, I often think about that it's people want to change as little as possible so that as much as what happens at the moment can stay the same. And I say bollocks to that. This is our opportunity to change everything, right? Um, and, it, and it is fantastic that quite middle-of-the-road scientists, liberals in a whole variety of different institutions actually are waking up to the fact that capitalism is not only unsustainable uh, for the people that have for centuries uh, been churned through its production processes uh, and killed and maimed and harmed, but that that it's simply not sustainable any longer. But I would say that it's not a foregone conclusion of what happens after fossil capitalism, right? And so we've got to be in it to win it, which means that we have to build social movements that are strong enough to be able to intervene into the changes that are coming. Um, And so the COP26 offers an opportunity to try to start that conversation or connect conversations that are already beginning. This is not the beginning of these campaigns by any stretch of the imagination, but there is a degree of urgency um, that I think many, many more people uh, are becoming aware of uh, and are you know, um, they've been told for the last kind of 20 years that they just need to stop using plastic bags and change their light bulbs, right? Um, and then that somehow connects to mega firestorms, you know? Um, so I think that it's right that people are a bit disorientated and confused uh, because the messaging uh, and, the th- and the way in which people have tried to take hold of this problem and make it individual, make it an individual contribution is a complete misdirection. And it's a misdirection on purpose by capital to distract us um, and make us think that if we just lead more ethical lives on an individual level, then somehow uh, we will morally not be responsible for climate change. And I think we need to turn that on its head and understand that there are a huge amount of men, basically, and a couple of women, uh, making a huge amount of money out of this crisis. Uh, and those, and we need to focus on that um, and uh, invest in, um, a, in, in a global movement that is rooted in local struggles. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Camille, for uh, speaking to Green Left and, uh, we hope we can catch up with you again, actually, before the People's Summit happens. Um, but uh, we just yeah, wish you all the best for organising over the coming months. Thank you very much. Uh, and I hope to see some really kick-ass demonstrations happening in Australia on November the 6th. See you later, everyone. Thanks. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and you're just listening to an interview um, that was conducted by Green Left's Susan Price um, with Kamala um, Pablogolo from the COP26 Coalition in Britain. And just to give a bit of a plug, the, um, the, COP, um, the COP26 Coalition has called this Global Day of Action for Climate Justice on November 6th, and there are going to be groups in Australia that are going to be calling a protest. So Uni Students for Climate Justice has called for a protest at 1pm at the State Library on November 6th, which is going to be following um, 
following the the end of um, lockdown. And I think, yeah, it's I think it's definitely... And there's also going to be another protest by Refugee Action Collective on the 7th of November, the following weekend. And I think, you know, with the lockdown kind of lifting, I think it is very good that, you know, left-wing and grassroots organisations have called for protests. Um, because, you know, ultimately, I mean, whatever the risk with COVID, um, out, um, COVID-19 um, transmission and... Um, in outdoor environments is very rare. And then at the same time, obviously all these actions will be conducted in the most COVID kind of safe um, way as possible. So I think, yeah, it will be very important, I think, to get back on the streets and sort of mobilise, um, especially around this whole Comp 26 um, kind of issue, because, you know, essentially all the politicians are going to come together and in Glasgow in November, and they're going to talk about all the apparent action they're going to take around climate change, which will really not amount to really um, anything. So it would just be more, as Greta sort of says, um, blah, blah, blah. And I guess another kind of thing to note about that is um, with um, one thing I've sort of noticed, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, Ari, but... um, Notice that the Herald Sun has already automatically is suddenly pro climate action for some bizarre reason. <laughs> um, it is essentially like put forward this. Um, it's put forward what it what it has put forward is it's putting forward this sort of new campaign around um, going a hundred percent renewables or something by twenty fifty or something. Mm. But I mean, this is the kind of the definition of greenwashing. Yeah, yeah. And then I noticed that. Um, there was a video by Joe Hillebrand, and now I didn't watch the video, but the substance of apparently what he was saying was he, the Murdoch press have come up with this new line, and in this, I think this is reflected in what Joe Hildebrand said, who's a very right-wing conservative kind of commentator, and the line basically is, we could have had climate action right now if it wasn't for the Labor Party and the Greens. So essentially they're putting all the kind of blame on um, Julia Gillard and the Greens, because at the time there was, there was, um, the Greens were sort of in some, were in a a bit of alliance or some kind of coalition a bit. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that was sort of the thing, um, the the thing that the day. Yeah. So essentially the, the right wing is, you know, they, they're rewriting history essentially because they have been at the forefront of opposing all forms of climate action. Now, while while I have, I don't, um, I don't want to necessarily defend Julia Gillard and the Labor government because I, I think that you know the Labor Party were pretty, um, did not put forward any, um, put forward a, like the carbon trading, the carbon tax was never sufficient enough to address the the scale of the climate crisis. But I think yeah, the fact that there's push from the right who have now all of a sudden adopted um, a pro climate change kind of messaging after being denialist for the good part of the year, I think is, yeah, it's for the good, well, for the good part of the past decade, essentially, I think is pretty, pretty interesting, I think, and just a bit a bizarre kind of, um, yeah, precedent. Not exactly surprising, though. It is a pretty common tactic of the right wing is to deny problems until you can't ignore them anymore and then claim that you haven't done anything about them. Claim that nothing's been done about them because of your political enemies, despite them shouting at you for the last, like, 50 years to do something. Mm. Anyway, I might just quickly um, play a quick announcement, and then we might just do a bit of a quick discussion um, on a Green Left kind of article. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. 
Well, if you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, I sure know where you are. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. We'll check out the happy vibe. We're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. What? Who the hell's that? Clap your hands. What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I thought we'd have um, we'll draw a discussion, um, have a bit of discussion, drawing from the pages of Green Left, and this is an article titled "United States Vaccines, Public Safety, and Workers' Rights." And this this is an article that kind of um, that gives a bit of a kind of summary of. Um, some of the, the debates and developments that have happened around vaccine mandates, um, public safety and workers' rights in the context of the United States. And Malik kind of starts the kind of discussion by saying that COVID-19 is causing death and human destruction in the United States and around the world. And of course, as of October, uh, Malik points out that more than 700,000 people um, have died in the US and more than 5 million across the world. And of course, he brings up that several vaccines have been in circulation since the end of last year, but most have been bought and hoarded by wealthy countries. And that's despite the fact that um, President Joe Biden has claimed that the US has pledged more vaccines to the world than all other countries combined, but actual distribution has been small. While unused doses have expired, millions of adults refuse to take the shots because of false information and objectively anti-science propaganda. And just to add a bit of a comment there that's not necessarily sort of in the article, I was having a bit of a look at the vaccination rates of, of different sort of countries around the world. And I kind of like just looked at, at sort of picking some sort of ran, some random, just random sort of uh, comparing a random country from say the global south, like let's say a country sort of in Africa and, um, and then compared it to like say a country like the United States and, and Canada. And essentially the vaccination rates, um, the disproportionate disparity between some of these countries was, I think, pretty appalling. The fact that mm. there are countries in the world, um, that only have a 1% kind of vaccination rate is, I think, an appalling reflection of our global kind of capitalist kind of system. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as Malik points out, the Biden administration has refused to try and force Moderna or Pfizer to trans, to, to, um, you know, open source their vaccine recipes and help people produce them, which has led to about 4.4% of Africa being, like people in the whole of Africa, uh, being vaccinated, which, um, <clears throat> at least according to who. And like, it's, as you were saying, it's kind of, from a random sampling at least, it's not much better in the rest of the kind of the quote unquote developing world, the global south. Hmm. And I guess, yeah, another thing is, um, as, as the kind of point that's kind of raised, and this is just an example of how corporate greed and profits always wins out over saving lives and public safety. And of course, while, um, while, while, and then of course this brings into the sort of next kind of discussion that, um, Malik sort of wants to bring in this sort of article, which is, 
you know, while while poor nations simply want access to the vaccine, what there's a bit of a funny trend in the countries that do have the vaccine, um, um, the access to vaccines. There is a sort of debate about vaccine mandates. Should vaccines be mandated um, by governments and employers, and should workers um, and um, should workers who refuse the shot be terminated? Now, Biden and most Democratic Party officials support employer and government vaccine mandates. Biden issued an order for all federal employers and private contractors to be vaccinated, and the Pentagon has ordered all military units and contractors to apply the same mandates. But, of course, many workers, including um, medical and school employees, are facing termination if they remain unvaccinated. Some unions oppose the mandates while urging members to get the vaccination, which is, I guess, a similar situation in, well, more in, in Australia. It's a bit more complicated because I think a lot of the blue-collar unions, like um, the CFMEU, uh, although I think the CFMEU has sort of changed the position a bit, AMW, the meat workers have been critical of vaccine mandates, whereas I think all the white-collar unions have been, in a sense, supportive of it, although sort of a bit of a caveat because essentially they um, they essentially say they don't support vaccine mandates unless they're driven by a public health order. But, yeah. of course, that's the context for all these vaccine yeah, mandates yeah, anyway. Yeah. So it's sort of like, um, I mean, because the state government is essentially pushing vaccine mandates through public health orders onto any sort of industry regardless. Yeah. But then going back to the kind of US sort of situation, New York and California, um, Malik has kind of pointed out, have taken the lead in mandating vaccine, vaccines and masks. Big employers such as United Airlines have used mandates to get 90% of employees vaccinated. Now, New York's vaccine mandate, which I think is probably one of the more interesting sort of ones to examine, um, especially in terms of the a debate about the kind of effectiveness of vaccine mandates. So Malik kind of points out here in this Green Left article that um, New York's vaccine mandates for healthcare workers went into effect on September 27th. Now, it puts unvaccinated healthcare workers throughout the state at risk of either losing their job or being forced to take unpaid leave. And the state's mandate is not just limited to doctors and nurses, but extends to all workers in the healthcare system, including food service workers, administrators and janitorial workers. Hospitals throughout New York have already started sacking workers. The state has also determined that workers who are sacked on the grounds of vaccine refusal will not qualify for unemployment benefits unless they can prove a medical exemption. Now, these sackings are kind of seen as many on the left um, Malik kind of comments within the United States as an opening salvo from the state and bosses for further attacks on all workers, union and non-union. However, it's it's a bit, I think Malik sort of points out that it's a bit more complex than that. It is also more about how the working class should respond to a pandemic and protect workers' interests at the same time. And Malik makes the argument here that, you know, frontline workers must be vaccinated to protect co-workers and members of the public seeking health. However, it is, in a sense, wrong to sack workers who have put their lives on the line throughout the pandemic. Accommodations must be negotiated. And, of course, the type of accommodation is not... This is not an accommodation of accepting people's sort of right to not necessarily be vaccinated. But, of course, Malik makes the argument here that, you know, attempts to incentivize workers to vaccinate helped at first. A more positive approach would be to give those refusing vaccination unpaid suspension for a period of time or forlong them until they comply. It includes providing unemployment benefits and a right of recall when and if the pandemic is under control. Mm. 
And I guess another thing to note is California became um, the first state to announce a COVID-19 vaccination requirement for all public and private school children on October 1st. This affects millions of, of students and places the state at the forefront of the strict pandemic safe um, safe me- safety measures. And I'll, I'll probably just skip over this and just go over to the private employers kind of thing. And the other thing is United Airlines and other carriers have announced that all employers, unionised or non-unionised, must be vaccinated or face termination or suspension in the case of medical um, and religious exemptions. This comes after months of urging workers to get vaccinated, which includes financial incentives. Now, one other kind of interesting kind of thing um, is, you know, there is now kind of the case um, that, you know, few workers will hire workers unless they're vaccinated, which most workers will have to consider before quitting job, um, quitting a job due to vaccine requirements. And I guess the larger issue with all this kind of stuff, you know, I think, you know, Malik is sort of making a good, interesting kind of argument on sort of the pop, some of the issues with these sort of vaccine mandates that are applied. But I think he also, the point, he points out that the larger issue need to con- uh, is the need to defeat those politically opposed to vaccinations in a global pandemic. Now, anti-vax, going on the question of anti-vax um, misinformation, anti-vax activists are a minority that must be confronted directly and isolated. They have been the most a- loudest and most agitated um, in voicing, voicing violent threats against mandatory vaccinations and the wearing of masks. You know, and the mainstream Republican Party has given them a support as an opportunistic strategy to gain votes to win back control of Congress and the presidency. You know, anti-vax activists are promoting their misinformation on social media and through right-wing operatives in the Republican Party. You know, ironically, Malik kind of points out that many of these so-called anti-vax figures in the media are themselves vaccinated. Fox News, for example, requires employees to be vaccinated will undergo daily COVID-19 testing, yeah. um, which is a bit, yeah, a, a very sort of random, funny bit of irony, but also mm. sort of reflects how much um, of the, you know, how despicable a lot of these right-wing sort of, you know, politicians and right-wing media outlets are. They can, they're, they're benefiting from pushing and peddling misinformation onto the public, but also they're not, they're not actually... Um, staying true to the word and actually living by by their yeah. so-called example. Yeah, it kind of demonstrates what this sort of propaganda often is for, like the, the anti-vaccination push from, say, Fox News or conservative outlets or the GOP or whatever, is like even if there are some people who genuinely support that sort of stuff, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a QAnon supporter in Congress or whatever, the point isn't that they think this is true. The point is that it's something that they can get this big enough base worked up over, which um, Malik does talk about that in a way it's the the whole kind of ginning up of, <clears throat> pardon me, the whole ginning up of this kind of pretty like violent or at least like rhetorically violent, but often actually violent kind of um, anti-vax sentiment is really just to kind of create this very like devoted um very kind of almost like dogmatic or whatever voting base that's kind of essentially like unapproachable from like an even more like even less right-wing position like there are right-wingers that these people will target as well because they're not right-wing enough and stuff like that 
Yeah, and I think, you know, um, one of the other interesting things that um, Malik kind of points out in the article, which I sort of end this sort of discussion on, is the Republicans have, in- interesting enough, or the right-wing sort of anti-vaxxers in, um, in the case of in the case of the United States, have one sort of way they've been trying to get past um, vaccination has been this whole weird thing of religious exemption, basically making the argument that they have a religious... They have... It's probably within the Constitution or something within the US or something convoluted like that. Yeah. Um, Or what is the kind of thing... You've read the thing or... Yeah, so there's... Basically, the First Amendment to the US Constitution is something like the Congress can't make any laws that would impede the the free exercise of religion or something and so there's this argument like with this religious exemption argument that um that like basically that getting vaccinated for people with certain religious principles would be essentially um like an infringement of that free exercise of religion or whatever and so there are examples like the supreme court ruled in april that California could not, like, could not apply COVID-19 restrictions to an at-home Bible study group, which had more than three households meeting in the same room, uh, which is a, was a violation of the uh, state's health regulations. And so, like, <clears throat> pardon me, there is that sort of um, thing. And, you know, the a lot of the United States has this very big thing about, like, the First, first Amendment to the Constitution, which is the, usually thought of as the Free Speech Amendment, but is also the, like... The, the freedom of religious amendment. So it's kind of really in a lot of ways, the, the whole religious exemption thing is more like, it's more of a political position than a religious one, right? It's a, a kind of, as, um, <clears throat> the article says that the so-called religious exemption is a political ruse, really. <clears throat> and that like, the, a minority of people can't be, shouldn't be allowed to prevent mass vaccina- vaccinations, though the, the article does make the point, um, sorry, Malik does make the point that the, this, the minority in the US is about 20%, which is something like 70 million people, which is like nearly twice the population of Australia in the US is against vaccination. So like, it's, it is much more extreme in the US than in Australia that I think that is worth making clear. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, and it's like, um, going back to this whole discussion about the the global north to global south divide when it comes to vaccination, it's mm-hmm. like, what one of the funniest sort of things about this anti-vaccination sort of phenomena is it's really only I've only noticed that mm. it's really a thing in industrialized, yeah, yeah, um, global north countries that are actually rich in resources. They, there's mm. no questioning of vaccination in the global south. Well. I think there is a bit, but in my opinion, it's often a lot more reasonable. Like I have a friend in the Philippines, for example, who I was recently, she recently got vaccinated with the the Sinovac vaccine. But I was talking to her a little while ago about vaccine hesitancy, and she was basically making a similar point, which is like, why in the West, in this like industrialized, like, you know, quote unquote, more advanced societies, are there all these people who are like shrieking about vaccines? Compared to like what she was saying is basically like in the Philippines and probably in a lot of the world, there's a bit of hesitancy just because there's a long history of like the global north just using these countries as just like, let's test all of these like definitely harmful medications and stuff. And still, there would probably be much higher uptake in a lot of these countries than there is in the US if yeah. they had more access to the vaccine. Yeah, and of course, all most people in the global north have never had the history or the experience of that. 
Which is, yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's, it's exactly. sort of reflective of a certain weird sense of privilege. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just want to go, I'll just play a quick announcement and we just want to go quickly kind of do um, the Green Left kind of activist calendar. Um, you are listening to Green Left um, Radio and the article that we're sort of reading from is, um, the article is titled, um, if you want to kind of read more, United States Vaccines, Public Safety and Workers' Rights and it's being written by Malik Mee and it's just recently been published by, um, by Green Left as of the 13th of October. So, yeah, just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now it's a bit time for a quick Green Left activist calendar. So just giving you um, some of the highlights of some upcoming kind of events that are going to be happening. So the first event that's actually happening today is there's actually um, going to be, there's an online climate strike happening in different parts of, well, basically, on, it's happening online in, in Melbourne, but yeah, there's sort of different sort of Zoom sort of links to kind of link to. If you go into the School Strike for Climate kind of website, you can be join in and be part of this um, um, national, um, day of action. And it's going to be happening, I think, around from 5 to 6 p.m. Um, just over Zoom. And then on from Saturday, October the 16th um, to October the 17th, there's going to be um, a conference um, titled, I think, let me just titled um, ID 2021, um, Planet Health and Hope, and it's basically um, it's a basically a conference that is um, that is um, that is basically centered around um, health and the climate, and it's sort of inviting sort of public health professionals and or anyone sort of interested in the climate movement. So that's going to be happening um, from this weekend, from the Saturday the 16th to the 17th of October. And then um, there's going to be an online forum, um, Nuclear No Climate um, Solution, and that's going to be organised by Act on Climate Victoria and Yes um, Yes to Renewables, and that's happening at 7 p.m. on Monday on no 7 p.m. on Thursday, October the 21st. And then um, there'll be on Friday, October the 29th, there'll be an online forum, the transgender issue, an argument for justice. And then on Wednesday, November the 3rd, there's going to be um, a, um, a Stop Adani action, Stop the Money Action Hour at 7pm. And then on Saturday, um, October the 6th, there's going to be a rally, Comp 26 Day of Action at 1pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on Sunday, November the 7th, there'll be a rally, Free the Refugees, Permanent Reasons at 2pm at Lincoln Square in Swanson Street, Carlton. So yeah, those are all, those are just an example, I guess, of some of the kind of events coming. And yeah, I think that's, um, I'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll just go on to the next part um, of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for this program today, um, we're, we're very happy. We have um, National Co-Convener of Socialist Alliance, Sam Rainwright, on our program today. And we're going to be having a discussion with him about um, the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2021 conference, um, which has been co-organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. So good morning, Sam. Yes, good morning to you, Jacob. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. So what can you, um, so Sam, you are one of the kind of organizers of the upcoming kind of eco-socialism conference, which is going to be happening for our listeners information from October the 22nd to October the 24th. And, um, what can you tell us a bit about the conference? Like a bit, I guess the political kind of context for, um, what this conference is attending to do. Sure. Look, it's an exciting two and a half day conference. It'll be taking up a whole range of themes touching on social justice human rights and the struggle uh, to create a, um, a, a livable planet for, for human civilization. I think probably the, the best context is the debate that's happening in Australia at the moment around the issue of climate change. I mean, it's quite a spectacle that our government uh, is struggling to even commit to the net zero by 2050 target, uh, which has been bandied around. And it's worth, it's worth emphasizing that Net zero by 2050 is a political target. Um, it's not a target based on science. It would not be sufficient to stop runaway global warming. Uh, so the fact that pol- the, you know, the ruling, uh, government party in Australia can't even commit to a, a target that's really designed to delay the action that we require, um, can't even make a, a small symbolic step of, of signing up to net zero by 2050 shows what a, um, what a pile of state we're in in Australia. Um, of course, we need to go much further than that. And the conference will be talking about the sort of action, the sort of alliances, the sort of movement for change that we're going to need to build in order to, to put it bluntly, break the back of the capitalist system and create the possibility for a new world. And um, what can you tell us about, I guess, the program, I guess, of the conference? What are some of the kind of highlights and some of the sessions and discussions that are going to be kind of, um, that are going to be had in some of the sessions? Because, yeah, it's quite, there's quite a packed agenda. Um, yeah, for the sure, there sure is. Look, the, the, the session I'd highlight first is the, is the opening one on the Friday evening, and that one will be streamed. Um, so you don't have to uh, pay for registration to, to, to attend that one, although I'd certainly encourage people to do that. Uh, but the Friday evening one will give you, give, give people a good taster of, of what's coming up. And we've titled that one, Capitalism is in Crisis, Eco-Socialist Feminists Speak Out. So on that one, we've got three fantastic uh, women activists from around the world who will be talking about the scale of the crisis, both the ecological crisis, but it's 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 global dimensions and the fact that it's also, the ecolog- ecological crisis also flows from a world system that sees, you know, 80% of the world's wealth concentrated in 
the wealthy countries where only about 15% of the population resides. You know, it's clear that uh, the pathway to a sustainable future actually means creating a society where wealth distribution and democracy are, um, are conceived of completely differently to, to the one we live in at the moment. Um, but th- our three keynote speakers on that one, will, as I said, will be really interesting. So one is Bryn Smith. Uh, she's a member of parliament in Ireland for People Before Profit Solidarity with a long record campaigning for, for women's rights, for the, the successful rights uh, for abortion rights for women in Ireland, a successful campaign to stop water privatisation and a trade unionist. And I think her, her contribution will be really interesting because I think it's it's going to be very, it's very valuable and valuable for us in Australia to, to see the example of a of another, um, you know, so-called first world or wealthy country, um, where, a, you know, uh, where like an anti-capitalist movement has, has gained, um, a mass hearing. Uh, certainly they're not a majority, um, you know, it doesn't represent a majority thing in, in, in Irish, in Irish politics or society, but it's quite significant. Um, and I think that's, we, we can learn a lot from that, but we also need to learn about, uh, the reality of life of people, um, struggling in the majority of the world, in the so-called global south or uh, developing countries, and Kavita Krishnan, who's a um, secretary of the All India Progressive Women's Association uh, and a leader of the Communist Party of India, ML, uh, both mass organisations in their own right, um, and she's got a lot of experience also both in the struggle for women's rights but also the, the, the really significant struggles for farmers' rights that have been taking place against the um, you know, quite right-wing, increasingly authoritarian and, and sectarian Narendra Modi government. So she'll bring a really interesting perspective. And then the third speaker on that one is Nalufa Koch, and she is the External Affairs Commission spokesperson for the Kurdistan National Congress. And, you know, something Australians aren't sufficiently aware of, I don't think, is the, um, the extraordinary achievements of the Kurdish liberation movement, um, both in the areas in, in, in Rojava, um, in in what is West Kurdistan or Northern Syria, um, the extraordinary achievements there in, in for a bottom-up creation of a new, new, new power structure, um, but also in other parts of Kurdistan spread across Northern Iraq and, and, and Southern Turkey. Um, there's a lot for us to learn in, in the way that they've managed to bring together um, the, the, the ideas of the socialist movement, anarchist movement, women's liberation and ecology, um, and create it as their new new their own new authentic thing and um so those three speakers are just going to be absolutely knockout in terms of giving us a, a sense of the way forward for the struggle both in australia and globally yeah and um you've you've um kind of spoke a bit about i guess some of the kind of international kind of speakers that were kind of be and highlighted some of the kind of international kind of speakers that are going to be kind of speaking i guess at the conference and i guess in terms of like the Australian sort of context, I guess, and in terms of like the, the conference's sort of agenda, what kind of topics that are going to sort of be discussed and kind of addressed in, in terms of the kind of local kind of context, um, in terms, in, with this kind of conference? Oh, sure. Look, so there'll be throughout the conference, the, some of the themes that I, that, that I mentioned that will be, um, picked up on Friday will be continued on, on, on the Saturday morning, um, with a more of a global, um, uh, picture. We've got one on Saturday morning, Why Eco-Socialism, the Global Fight for a Red-Green Future. Uh, but on the Saturday afternoon, um, there'll be a panel, Workers' Rights in the Age of COVID-19. So that's, that's going to, I think that's very useful. Um, you know, everyone's been talking about the fact that COVID has exposed the fact that so many workers are precarious, casual, part-time, can't get enough work, and, co- and COVID's just exacerbated that insecurity. So that's, that's going to be a really, really good panel. Um, we flip over onto the Sunday. There's, uh, there's, a, there's a panel discussing the, 
AUKUS and the war drive or the you know the war drums um, being raised against China, and of course that's that's totally significant for us in Australia. It's it's clear that the Morrison government has just absolutely decided to commit Australia to a U.S. policy of so-called containing China, um, essentially a military confrontation with China, which is very very dangerous. Um, so that's that's going to be on Sunday morning. A um, couple of speakers on that will be Peter Boyle from Socialist Alliance and David Brophy, uh, who is author of China Panic. Australia's alternative to par- paranoia and pandering, and you can read some of his stuff in in, in other places as well. And then on the uh, on that Sunday afternoon, we'll be talking about well, how do we actually build an anti-capitalist left in Australia? What are the way forwards? You know, where in Australia the left is still relatively small, um, even even compared to other wealthy countries around the world. Um, so that panel, we've got a panel called "Beat Back the Right: Build an Anti-Capitalist Left," and we also want to be looking at the danger of the growth of the far right in Australia, which I think some of the um, you know, the far right outfits that have been trying to sort of um, jump on the the, the the COVID conspiracy or anti-vaccination, or anti-lockdown type stuff. We've, we've certainly seen straws in the wind that the kind of far right that exists in other in, in other countries could certainly emerge in this country as well. So two speakers of that are going to be myself uh, on behalf of Socialist Alliance and um, Jonathan Sree, who's a Greens councillor up in um, up in Brisbane. Uh, the Greens up in South East Queensland there are quite quite left wing and so we really want to have an interesting dialogue with them about how we um, how we build the kind of uh, fighting grassroots anti-capitalist left political project in this country that we, we we believe we desperately need so I think they'll all be great and this there'll be workshops on both the Saturday afternoon and the Sunday afternoon exploring some other themes as well yeah and um guess um that you've given a, a great kind of overview I guess of the kind of conference and I guess in terms of like a kind of concluding question how can people um participate in the conference and um what can you, um yeah those kind of steps that kind of need to be taken and any sure. final well, comments you'd like to yeah, make yeah look if, if people would like to see the um the agenda in more detail just go to ecosocialism.org.au uh and that'll also point you to uh how to how to get tickets uh, for the Saturday and the Sunday, and also details how to tune into the Friday, for the Friday afternoon. Um, you you can get details on our Facebook page as well. Um, but yeah, the web page itself, ecosocialism.org.au, would be the first place to go to. Hi, well, thank you very much, Sam. Um, this is um, um, just a, a reminder. Um, the Eco Socialism Conference is going to be happening from October the twenty second um, to October the twenty fourth, which is obviously this um, next kind of weekend and we'll be featuring a kind of agenda of a number of kind of different sessions including internet um, socialists from overseas and yeah you can book your tickets um, by going on to the website ecosocialism.org.au anyway thank you very much um, Sam for being on our program and yeah we hopefully you have a very successful conference thanks Jacob much appreciated all right, you were just listening to a pre-recorded interview I did with Sam Rainwhite, um, who is the National Co-Convener of Socialist Alliance, about the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2021 conference that is going to be happening um, next week. So, yeah, I, um, just a reminder, um, you, you can you can look at the agenda of that conference by going on to ecosocialism.org um, and .au. Now, I thought I'll just give, um, I'll do a bit of a, I'll do a bit of a quick kind of news story for the kind of last kind of part of the program. And, um, this is a story that, um, basically the, the, this, um, this is a story that it is, um, um, basically it's about, um, this new kind of a foreign Italian style law 
um, by the government. It's just a sort of another kind of example of our government's kind of migration kind of system. But basically, there is essentially this proposed sort of um, legislation that essentially um, that essentially would extort a, 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 la, a regime of alarming um, secrecy, and essentially this would allow. Australia to use kind of secret kind of evidence to deport kind of migrants and mm. to kind of look into starting from drawing on this sort of um, this kind of green left, um, not this green left, this article from The Guardian. It quotes here, Chris has never be, had never been charged with a crime, never accused, never questioned, but his visa was summarily cancelled and, and he was no longer welcome in Australia, the only country he had, he had no, ever known as home. Chris had lived in Australia for more than 30 years since the age of one, but had his visa cancelled in 2019 for being an out, for once having been a member of an outlaw motorcycle group, the Mongols, despite that group not being outlawed in the state where he lived. In, um, in, in, in August, his appeal reached the federal court, which handed down an extraordinary judgment condemning the government's decision and quashing the cancellation of his visa. But now, in response to that, <laughs> the federal government is now seeking to mm. enact new laws that would make it difficult to challenge such a visa cancellation. Under um, the proposed laws, a person's visa could be cancelled without them knowing why or on what evidence the decision was based. Upon cancellation, the um, visa holders would be forcibly removed from Australia or, if they were stateless, detained indefinitely without charge or trial. And of course, it's kind of an obvious one, right? Is like it feels like they have introduced this legislation basically just to avoid to avoid embarrassment. It's like, oh, wait, somebody looked at our evidence and found that it was laughably weak, and like told everyone about it. That's embarrassing. What if we legislate so that we never have to show anybody any evidence of why we're trying to fuck with this person or trying to deport them or whatever? That way we can never get embarrassed because our evidence is always laughably weak. Yeah. And of course, most of the time, these sort of legislative changes are always sort of based on, um, fr- um perceived kind of threats of kind of terrorism. And in fact, they'll justify, mm. you know, giving these sort of extra powers to governments to be able to deport migrants on the basis of, oh, well, this is, this yeah. is in Australia's national interest. We've got to keep our country safe, you know. Obviously, we're a runnable island in the middle of nowhere. You know, we can't have <laughs> certain people coming into our country. Otherwise, you know, yeah. the whole fabric of society would fall fall apart. As if as if our politicians are not already contributing that to that enough. But yeah, it's just... yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that like they keep in this article the the quotes from people from proponents of this bill. Um, in the Guardian article, a lot of them are talking about, like, um, you know, it's in the public's best interest or something for us to, like, live in a society where the government can just, like, kick people out of the country for no reason without anybody knowing why they did that. It's like, how is that in the public's best interest? There's kind of no, like, that's, I can't work out how that could be justifiable, really. And it's one of those things that I think a lot of... um let's say theoretically well-intentioned kind of right-wingers forget is like a lot of people who buy into this propaganda of basically brown people bad or, you know, there's this uh, external threat of terrorism. I think there's this thing that a lot of people forget is that like a lot of uh, like unreasonably harsh laws like these, they end up trickling down, so to speak. Like they end up kind of 
in a way, it's a pilot test for like, and I, I don't want to be alarmist, but it there there can be a tendency for laws like this to end up being sort of like a pilot test for stuff that that the government can then use on the the quote unquote general population. Like, mm. it's not going to stop with um, like evidence free deportations there's gonna end up we're gonna end up with more evidence-free you know prosecutions for unknown crimes basically hmm. and of course just to give a bit of context a, a summary um a lot of most um the guardian this guardian article kind of points out that most visa cancellations in australia are generally kind of made under section 501 of the migration act and this is called so-called um character kind of tests and of course most have been against people who have been convicted of a offence and served a prison term of more than one year. But the government can also, um, the current sort of context, the government can cancel a person's visa without a crime being committed for association with someone else whom the reasonable minister reasonably suspects is involved in criminal conduct or for general conduct where the person's conduct may not have constituted a criminal offence. And, of course, the government's use of the Section 501 character test has escalated dramatically over the past decade, increasing nearly tenfold from 139 to a peak of a call 1,278 in 2016 to 2017. And of course, the government wants to amend laws that actually makes them makes it easier for them to do that. So, yeah, I think this is definitely a, like a reflect an outrageous um, move by the government. And I think, you know, as you know, left wing people, we should definitely be speaking out and opposing it. Anyway, um, I think the I think um, um, we're getting to um, the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, it's been a good um, kind of program, and stay tuned in for next week. You're listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.